Today we are continuing our series in the book of Malachi, and as we do so, we're going to continue to see the immense difference between the character of God and the character of His people. And we'll also see God's remedy to the problems that we face. So why don't we turn in our Bibles, if you have your Bibles, or look up on the screens. We're going to be in Malachi 3 today starting in verse 6, going through verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. You may sit down and let's go to the Lord now in prayer as we seek to understand his word. Father in heaven, we do praise you today for your unchanging nature and for your unchanging word. We ask that you would help us today to respond to it rightly, that we might hear your voice, the voice of our heavenly Father, and be changed. We ask that in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if we want to fix a problem in our lives, it's really important that we receive an accurate diagnosis for that problem, or else it's really hard to fix. This is true in all areas of life. Some years ago, I, well, a lot of years ago now, I was in high school, I had a back injury, and So I went to a doctor and the doctor said that I had a stress fracture and he said I was gonna have to miss the entire basketball season. That wasn't such a good diagnosis for me at that time of life. So I went to another doctor and he said, you can play immediately. And so I took the second doctor's diagnosis and I started to play. Well, it wasn't but a few weeks into me playing that I started to writhe in pain every time I played basketball. And I realized that the first doctor, his diagnosis, although not what I wanted to hear, was the the right one. And I had to end the rest of my season. Well, when it comes to our relationship with God, the same principle holds true. That if we want a right solution, we have to have the right diagnosis. And many times when we try to diagnose our own relationship with the Lord, we go to other sources. 
We might go to the culture that just says, well, you just need to discover your truth and whatever is right for you is right. Or we go to our friends who see our actions, they see our behaviors and they think, well, you know, what you're doing is not so bad and they're kind of sympathetic towards us. Or we even take counsel with ourselves and we self-diagnose. You know, this is dangerous on the internet if you do that for your health. It's also dangerous in your relationship with the Lord. When you kind of think, well, I'm not really as bad as everyone else, I think I'm doing okay. If we want an accurate diagnosis with where we stand with God, only God can diagnose that problem. And so we need to go to his word so that we can find the right solution or way forward. And so here in Malachi 3, that's what we get. We get God's diagnosis for his people. And it's not what they want to hear. It's not even what they expect to hear. But it's what they need to hear. And then he graciously provides the solution to their problem. And so we need to listen in because his words to them back then bear relevance and are very relevant in our lives today. And so we've come to the fifth rhetorical disputation, it's called. There's, if you remember, if you haven't been here for our series on Malachi, there's six of these disputations throughout the book. And we've come to the fifth. Last week, you remember, if you were here at the end of chapter two, going into chapter three, the people were questioning God's justice. They were saying, where is the God of justice? And God answered, by saying, oh, I am the God of justice, and justice is coming in the form of judgment, even upon you. And next week, we're going to be talking to the sixth disputation about another uh, passage talking about judgment as well. And so, nestled in these two passages on judgment, we have this beautiful reprieve. It's where God is calling his people back to himself, to return to him and in, in this call for us, uh, a call emerges. In a sentence, it's this. We need to experience God's blessing by returning to him. Experience God's blessing by returning to him. Our passage today breaks down into two main sections, two main headers. There's the, the curse and the blessing. So God accurately diagnoses the problem in the first section and he, and he tells them they're under a curse. And in the second section, he says, this is how you return to me and these are the blessings that will result. And out of those two sections, we have uh, two action steps for us. If we want to similarly return to God, two action steps for us. So first, agree with God's diagnosis. That's in verses six to nine. And second, act in faith, marveling at God's blessing. That's in verses 10 to 12. So let's first look at that uh, first step needed to return to God, which is to agree with God's diagnosis. Right away, we're reminded why God's assessment can be trusted. If you look there at verse 6, he's, uh, the, Malachi's, or the Lord says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So here God affirms his immutability or his unchanging nature. Friends, God does not change. 
He is consistent, he is steady, he is a rock. He doesn't need to learn anything. He doesn't need to grow in any way. He is perfect. He can be counted on. His promises never fail. He is completely trustworthy. And I wonder if you, this morning, need to be reminded of the unchanging nature of God. Maybe you are facing some circumstances in your life that are causing you to question what God is doing. Well, friends, God has not changed. No matter how much your life has changed, no matter what you're feeling right now, he has not changed. Remember what Hebrews tells us. It gives us wonderful assurance when it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, this unchanging nature of God is the only reason that God's people are even still a nation It's because he's committed to fulfilling his covenant with his people. Notice how he calls them the children of Jacob. He's once again drawing them back to what he said at the beginning of chapter one. Remember what he said at the beginning of the book here. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And then he goes on to say how Esau or Edom will be consumed for their evil deeds. They will not survive because of their disobedience. Jacob, in the same way, was disobedient, but they are not consumed, God says, because I never change. My promises never fail. I'm a covenant-keeping God. And in case they had forgotten, the Lord highlights just why they deserve to be consumed in verse 7. So if you can look there. It says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. In other words, they deserve to be destroyed because of their persistent and long-standing disobedience. They had been disobedient from the Lord ever since they became a nation, up to this very moment. It's as if the Lord is saying, since the beginning, you have left the path of faithfulness. You have gone astray. You have gone your own ways. You deserve to be consumed, but you're not yet consumed. So the stage is set. The holy God has suspended his full judgment upon his people. It is coming. We learned about that last week, and we'll learn about it next week as well. They are guilty, and judgment is coming, but they are not yet consumed. So what are they to do? Well, he tells them in the next sentence. He says, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Again, the picture here is that God's people have turned off the path of God. They have have turned away from the ways that God had set out in his word from the very beginning. And they are headed down a path. They're wandering in a field, but it's a path that leads to destruction. And God here is graciously saying, return to me. Come back to the path that I have laid. Come back to me. It's a picture, friends, of repentance. What is repentance but a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior? The Puritan Thomas Watson says that repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. What does it look like to repent? What does that mean? Well, Watson in his book on repentance gives six helpful ingredients of what repentance looks like. I'll say them 
quickly. First, repentance is sight of sin. You gotta realize that you're actually in sin before you can repent. Second, sorrow for sin. There's a grief, there's a mourning over it. Third, confession of sin before God and before others. Shame for sin is number four. Hatred for sin is number five. And six, turning from sin. It's what it looks like to repent. But God's people here still need more convincing that repentance is needed. They're not, they haven't even got number one down. They, they haven't even seen the sight of sin. They don't know what they're doing. We know that by what they say at the end of verse seven. They say, but you say, how shall we return? You see, the problem was that not only that God's people had turned aside from his ways, they had, they had turned off the path, it was that they weren't even aware of how very lost they were. They didn't see the problem. And isn't that so true for many of us today? We often don't see our need for repentance. We can fall into some certain patterns of sin and we can become deaf to God's word. We don't hear it. It doesn't penetrate our hearts like it used to. And before we know it, we don't realize just how far we have drifted away from God. Well, God gets his people's attention by meeting them right where they live. He gives them a specific example from their daily lives, and he uses shocking language to do it. So look at verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You can imagine God's people. They're now on their heels. What, what is the Lord talking about? What is he saying? We, they don't even know <laughs> what, what he's doing here, or at least they're pleading ignorance. They say, but you say, how have we robbed you? God's answer, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, and you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. You see, God's people mistakenly thought that their failure to be blessed at this time in history was God's fault. They, they thought that God had forgotten about them. They thought that God would not uh, fulfill his promises and since they were poor, since they were struggling, since they were in a difficult situation, they justified offering less than God had prescribed in his law, in their tithes, in their offerings. They had the wrong diagnosis to the problem and therefore the wrong solution. And God here is telling them the truth. He's giving them an accurate diagnosis. He's saying that the reason they weren't being blessed was because of their disobedience. They had failed to give their tithes and contributions first out of their best. Indeed, they were instead giving their leftovers. They were, if you remember back to the passage Jared preached in chapter one, they were giving lame offerings. They were giving blind animals when they were called to give perfect, unblemished sacrifices. But this issue wasn't just one person. It wasn't just a handful of people doing this. It was the entire nation that was in on it. The leaders had failed the people. They were not teaching the people what they should be doing, but the people had been sinning, and it spread throughout the whole community. And friends, this is a picture of the danger of sin when it's left unchecked in a community. It spreads 
It can happen that certain sins start to be accepted within a community, even in a church like ours, because everyone else is doing it. It can happen, yes, in our giving, like in Malachi's time, withholding our best from God. But it also frequently happens today with sins of the tongue, like gossip or slander, or sins of the heart, like sexual immorality or lust or envy or worldliness or greed. We can start to think, well, that's just kind of the way it goes. That's just everyone is kind of into this. And others within the church may become okay with these sins. And they're offering a faulty diagnosis. Kind of thinking, well, that's just kind of how humans are. And that's why we need to be diligent to look into God's word and to get his diagnosis about his heart on these matters. Because normalizing sin, friends, is so dangerous. It's so dangerous to normalize sin because when it spreads, it affects the whole community. And that's why we need to be diligent in fighting sin individually. Yes, individually in our time with the Lord, but also corporately as a body here at Hope. Well, it does beg the question, this whole situation, what, what really is the big deal? What, what's the big deal? Why did God need all of these tithes and offerings? Didn't he understand their predicament? Didn't he understand they were poor? Didn't he understand that they were struggling? Well, yes, of course, the Lord knew. He knows us fully. He knew their situation fully. The problem was that the people failed to realize that how they used their resources revealed what they believed about God. You see, how we use our resources, even today, reveals about what we worship most. Jesus said that you can't serve both God and money. He said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So back here in Malachi, their faulty offerings and tithes and contributions showed that they weren't serving God and that their hearts weren't fully with the Lord. So how do we apply these verses to us today? Because we're clearly not living in the old covenant under the, the law. We need to understand the context in which God was speaking. Jesus had not yet come. God's people were still under the law, and under God's law, he called for his people to give a tithe, a tenth of their grain, of their flocks, of all the possessions that they had. You can read about it more in Deuteronomy chapter 14 or chapter 26, but God says here that they were cursed with a curse because they were robbing God. You see, his people had failed to remember that God owns everything. They had forgotten, Psalm 24, 1, that the earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and the fullness therein. They had forgot that everything was God's, and so they were robbing God by failing to give back to him what was his in the first place. It was never theirs to withhold. They were just stewards. So this curse from God was a clear consequence for their failing to adhere to God's commands as revealed in his word. 
We can read about it more fully in Deuteronomy 28. You can go back and read Deuteronomy 28 soon, but uh, I just want to give you a snapshot of what they were disobeying from God's Word. So listen to Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 15. It says, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall be upon you and overtaken you. Skipping on to verse 18, cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. So what is God doing here? He is telling them that they are being cursed just like he told them they would be if they disobeyed his word, if they failed to act according to his law. They're receiving a just punishment from the God of justice. So friends, as we consider the Israelites and the circumstances that they were in because of their disobedience, if we're honest, we should see ourselves in the story before us. Because we also have broken God's law. We have sinned against them. And James 2.10 says if we break one command or one part of the law, we are guilty of all of it. And I wonder today if you have agreed with God's diagnosis about your life. That on your own, you are guilty before a holy God. On your own, you are under a curse. That is where the greatest news the world has ever known comes in. Because the Bible in Galatians 3 13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, Jesus absorbed the curse of God that was meant for us, that we were under by dying on the cross so that you and I might be able to experience the blessing of God. And if we return to him, what the Bible calls repentance, which involves agreeing with his diagnosis, that's what confession is, and turning away from our sin and turning towards him in faith, then he will give us new life. He will pour out the blessing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so if you're here this morning and you do not yet know Jesus, know that you are currently still under that curse you are still currently guilty before a holy God. But God is so gracious. He hasn't consumed you up to this point in your life. His forbearance is amazing. Let today be the day that you turn to Jesus for the first time to trust in him. And you'll receive God's blessing. Well, for many of us, if not most of us, we have done that. We have trusted in the Lord Jesus. For us, we need to remember that our entire life belongs to him. Every part of it. We were bought with a price. That includes your life, how you spend your time, your possessions. It's all the Lord's. So that means that you are robbing God if you are withholding a portion of your life from him, if you are harboring a secret sin that you love just too much to give to him, 
or if you're withholding your future plans, your career, your time, or your stuff from Him. You're robbing God. You see, when you receive God's diagnosis and you're found to be a thief robbing God, today God is calling you, believer, to return to Him, to repent. And as you do, He will return to you. He will restore fellowship with you. He will restore the sense of his presence and favor and joy of being in his, in his presence. Well, how do we return to God? It begins by agreeing with his diagnosis of our lives. Well, now as we continue in the text, the Lord shows us the next step in how we can return to God, and that's by acting in faith, marveling at God's blessing. You can imagine the trepidation of God's people. They have just been called out by the God of the universe. They have just been told they are robbing him. They are disobeying him. They've always disobeyed him. And yet, they are still poor. They are still struggling. They still don't have extra resources. They don't have an emergency fund set aside for goats and oil and grain. And so if they're going to obey the Lord and his command, they would need to trust him at his word and act in faith. The Lord understands this. So listen to what he says in verse 10. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now this is a fascinating verse of scripture. God commands his people to obey him in their tithing. And then he promises that he's going to pour out blessings upon them until there's no more need. It's, it's just going to be extravagant. And this verse, if you're familiar with uh, the Christian world, has been widely misunderstood throughout the ages. Uh, especially by prosperity preachers. Prosperity preachers use verses like this and they say things like, well, if you give $1,000 to the church, you're going to get a new car. If you give to the church, you're going to become rich. Well, friends, that is false teaching. That is twisting scripture. So if you're listening to things like that on the internet or in books, uh, run as far away as you can. So if it doesn't mean that, what does verse 10 mean? Well, first, we need to remember that this blessing is pronounced not to individuals, not just to you individually, but to an entire nation, an entire community, all of God's peoples. God is saying if they are faithful with their tithes and their offerings, their giving, then the Lord will abundantly supply their collective needs. It's so easy to read Scripture just, just so individually when it's, it's meant for a community. Well, second, we need to distinguish between when it is okay to test the Lord and when it's not okay. Because here he says, put me to the test. So when is it okay to test the Lord and when is it not okay? The answer is, it depends. We must never put the the Lord our God to the test by demanding God to act as we want him to act. When there's nothing in scripture, there's no promises to lean upon. 
The, the most poignant example of this is perhaps when Satan tested Jesus. And you remember, he took him to the apex of the temple and he said, hey, throw yourself off. And the angels, he quotes the scripture wrongly, the angels are going to catch you. And what did Jesus say? He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. He says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So we shouldn't put God to the test in a way that he has not commanded that will somehow manipulate him or put him in a position where he is being tested for who he is in the core of who he is. But here in Malachi, God has actually initiated his people. He's commanded his people to test him. He's calling people to act upon his promise to provide, to step out in faith, knowing that he never changes and that he never will change. He will always fulfill his promises to them. So when is it okay to test the Lord? It's okay to test the Lord when it involves acting in line with his promises. Scholar Douglas Stewart summarizes it well. He says, for God to invite investigation or action that will confirm his promises is a gateway to blessing. That's when it's okay, when God invites this investigation. For people to demand that God prove himself is true is a door to sin. That's when it's not okay to test the Lord. So if we want to understand this verse, we also need to move on and realize the original context of these verses. God is saying that the people, uh, he's saying if, if the people obey him in the commands about tithing, then he will bring blessings from the law as promised in Deuteronomy 28. So we'll go back to Deuteronomy 28. You can read it again at home this week. But starting in verse 1, it says, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, then, verse 11 of Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your livestock, in the fruit of your ground. And then in verse 12, it's almost like a, direct quote, it seems, here in Malachi. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land and its season and to bless all the work of your hands. So what is God saying? This is showing that the Lord will fulfill his covenant blessings to his people at this time should they obey. And we see further evidence of God's covenant blessings in verse 11 And then verse 12, he says, I will rebuke the devourer for you. This is again in Malachi. So that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed and you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So what is God doing here? He is showing them that he controls all things including the local economy, which at this time was tied to things like rain and the absence of plant-eating pestilence called the devourer here and crop abundance. At this time in history, all nations calling Israel blessed would have been unthinkable. They were a backwater nation. They were subservient to the Persian empire. But he's saying, if you obey me in this, I'm going to pour out so many blessings that all nations will call you blessed. It's an amazing promise. 
but we're no longer living under the old covenant. We're not Old Testament believers. We can't take hold on to these promises in the same way. We're not prosperity. I'm not a prosperity preacher. We're not prosperity Christians in that way. So in, in any case, if you got more rain right now, most of you aren't farmers. It, it wouldn't make a difference if you had more rain. Some of you don't like rain, you know, so it's not a blessing to you. So, so what is an equivalent for us today? Well, primarily this section, again, once points us to the covenant keeper, the covenant messenger from verse one of chapter three there in Malachi. It points us to Jesus. He's the one who perfectly obeyed the law. And therefore, all the blessings promised by the law are his. They are given to him. And by implication, when we repent, when we turn from our sin and turn to him, Jesus shares not necessarily his material blessings, but the spiritual blessings, his spiritual blessings with us. We receive his righteousness. We receive his record instead of our really faulty record. We receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit who's the down payment of the internal inheritance that is ours. And we receive the fullness of joy and the pleasure that comes by being in God's presence. Friends, there are unending blessings for those of us who know and love Jesus, those of us who have repented of our sins and trust in him. And the blessings aren't necessarily material, but they are blessings in this life and especially in the life to come. But it does beg the question, what about our giving? Because aren't we talking about tithes and contributions here? Aren't you going to like make me feel guilty about how much you're giving right now? I'm not going to make you feel guilty, hopefully, unless God's word does. But we're no longer under the old covenant. And therefore, we're not to practice tithing, which is giving 10%, as a way to obtain God's blessing or to avoid his cursing. We're not under the old covenant. And furthermore, tithing is not reaffirmed in the New Testament. Jesus doesn't say, now give 10% of everything you have. But Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, there's a message on that. I preached on that a couple months ago. Giving is affirmed in the New Testament. He says not to give reluctantly. Don't give under compulsion, 2 Corinthians 9, but willingly from the heart. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. So when we give today, it's not out of this obligation. It's not so that we can obtain the blessing of God. We've already obtained the blessing of God if we know the Lord Jesus Christ. We give out of gratefulness of our hearts and we give abundantly, not measuring, saying like, oh yeah, it's like 9.5%, we're almost there. God might want to give you to give 35%, I don't know. He wants you to give out of the abundance of what he's given to you. Well, I wonder today if you're afraid of what might happen if you give generously to the Lord. You wonder if he'll provide enough for you. These verses in Malachi and then affirmed in 2 Corinthians and other places in the New Testament say that we can put him to the test in this. We're never going to outgive God. He will supply whatever you need as you give sacrificially to others. He will supply all that you need 
need. You're not going to get a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, so don't count on that. But he will supply what you need as you give sacrificially. But it may be that he's calling you to give sacrificially out of this, but it may be that he's just calling you in another area of your life to step out in faith, to live the life of faith. What is something that God has laid on your heart this week, maybe even this morning, even right now as I'm speaking? What is something that the Holy Spirit has laid on your heart to have you take a step of faith? Friends, the Christian life is a life of faith. And if we have repented and trusted in Christ, we will act in faith all the time. And as we do so, we will see God's abundant blessing poured out in ways that we could never imagine. Well, as we close, I want you to ask how God might be calling you today to return to him. How might he be calling you to repent It may be for the first time, and you've never repented and trusted in Jesus as your Savior. We would rejoice to hear about that. But for many of us, it may be that we need to repent of certain sins that we've been holding on to. We don't want to give up to God. We need to repent of not acting in faith where God is calling us to act. So take that step of faith and see the blessing of God that will result. So let us rejoice over all the blessings that God has poured out through his son Jesus. As we have repented and trusted in him, he will continue to do so in ways that we could never ask or imagine. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are in awe of you. We are so glad that you uh, speak honestly to us, that you give us an accurate diagnosis of our lives, of where we stand before you. And I pray today, Lord, that all of us would look into your word and see where we stand. And Lord, as we do so, we we do all fall short of, of your standard. So help us to trust in your son. Help us to rejoice in what we have in Christ, the riches that are ours, that are unending. Lord, help us to step out in faith. Many of us are withholding from you. We're robbing you in various ways because at the heart of it, we don't trust you. So Lord, help us to repent of our unbelief and to move forward in faith. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.